morning. Um, I'm Sarah Cornfield, and thank you so much for having me here to C3 this morning. I'm a professor of communication and women's and gender studies at Hope College, and it's a real delight to be here with you this morning. The research uh, that I will share as this teaching um, was co-authored by my former Hope College student, Sage Mickelson. And as a shameless plug, Hope College is ranked fourth in the nation for undergraduate research, and we're very proud of ourselves. Um, but mostly, this is one of the key reasons that I came to work at Hope College, as to, to have such a, uh, to share such scholarship with my students um, and this type of impact. Before we can dive into um, my work on women's ministries within evangelicalism, which is what this teaching is, uh, we have to understand two things. Uh, the first is fundamentalism, and the second is Christian white supremacy. So hold on, <laughs> right? Uh, we're going to do fundamentalism first. All around the world, there are fundamentalist religious communities. These are versions or sects or denominations or groups within a larger religious community uh, that are seen as being especially devout um, or especially dogmatic, um, and they often have extra rules. And at first glance, these communities can seem really different. Uh, fundamentalist Islamic sect on the surface looks really different from a fundamentalist Mormon group. Um, however, uh, studying these fundamentalist religious communities, anthropologist Maxine Margolis found that they all have two things in common, and those two are actually the same thing. Uh, so first, all fundamentalist religious communities insist that they have the right understanding of their holy scriptures. They alone are holding true to the original intent or to the literal meaning Right, so that's the first thing. Fundamentalist religious communities um, center around this sort of like scriptural authority. But the funny thing is, within these scriptures that they alone have rightly interpreted, uh, there's always something in them about women. And that's the second thing. These interpretations of scripture always seem to say that women are designed to follow men's leadership, to marry a man, to raise his children, and to nurture the home. Women are usually forbidden or very strongly discouraged um, from higher education, from high-powered jobs, from politics, and from religious positions of authority. Absolutely no preaching. Usually also no teaching for women. So the world over fundamentalist communities are marked by their treatment of women. And I'm going to explain a bad joke to try to drive this point home. Netflix thinks that I like stand-up comedy. I do not. Um, but my students uh, do a lot of research on, on stand-up comedy, so I end up watching it because I try to be a good prof. And so anyways, it messes up my algorithms, and I get all of these little clips of stand-up comedy happening in my life. Um, okay, here it is. By the way, I probably don't like stand-up, mostly because I'm jealous. Um, my students tell me regularly that I am not funny. So. Anyways, here we are. Uh, so I was, I, this clip came in my newsfeed, and in this clip, a comedian was complaining that his um, Jewish girlfriend had broken up with him because her father only wanted her to marry a Jewish man. Now, this joke is off to a real bad start. I'm ethnically Jewish, and it's, it's slow points already here. All right. Um, the punchline of the joke, though, 
was that the father must be very jealous of LGBTQ communities because LGBTQ communities have everything he imaginably wants, right? Um, they have, um, they have thriving, tight-knit, close communities, supporting, loving communities, and they're growing communities, right? And they don't have to reproduce. Uh, so, <laughs> so, this joke was never very funny to begin with, and it's gotten worse as I've retold it, um, but it highlights the thing, right? This is the gem. Fundamentalist communities have to control their women because that's how their community survives from one generation to the next. They need to get their women to do three things, to marry within the community, to have babies, the more the better, and to raise those babies to stay in the community, especially the daughters, because the cycle has to repeat generationally. Fundamentalism is generational. It depends on the women. So that's fundamentalism. Let's do Christian white supremacy. Uh, first, a definition of white supremacy. Uh, lots of us, when we hear white supremacy, we think neo-Nazis and the KKK, um, and yes, that's, that's white supremacy. They are. They are white supremacists. Um, but scholarship suggests that white supremacy is much bigger than that. White supremacy is the idea that whiteness and white culture is normal and good, uh, that whiteness is the default, or it should be, and that everything else is well, suspicious at best. Uh, and what's tricky here is that as the default, whiteness and white culture um, is often quite invisible, um, especially when it's in its less violent versions of white supremacy. So here's an example. White supremacist thinking might hold that America doesn't have its own ethnic food. Right? Well, there's nothing really like American cuisine. But we do. It's Panera's. Right? Um, and uh, yet, at the same time, a white supremacist sort of way of thinking wouldn't be maybe low-key upset about a Cuban sandwich shop opening down the street, um, low-key upset that Dora the Explorer can also speak Spanish, right? White supremacy is a continuum with neo-Nazis and the KKK and then a much broader sort of spectrum going on. What does this have to do with Christianity in America? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to colonial Virginia. In colonial Virginia, the colonists were not allowed to enslave Christians. So they enslaved heathens whom they abducted through the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, now, some of those enslaved people began converting and getting baptized. Hmm, you guys see the problem. So in 1705, Virginia passed a law legally defining black enslaved people as a reproductive race as, quote, incapable of Christianity. The plantation owners will change these laws later on when it suits them, um, but here at the beginning, at the start, Christianity and heathenism are conceptualized as hereditary. So this logic conflates and intertwines religion and the idea of race in ways that rest on women's reproduction. The 1705 law stipulating that black enslaved people could not be Christians cemented Virginia's earlier law, Partus Sequitur Ventrum, which said that for enslaved people, a child's legal status followed the mother. So if the mother is enslaved, then her child is enslaved. Notably, that was a reversal of the laws that white people followed in Virginia during this time, which is that a child's inheritance followed the father. Together, these laws ensured that all children of black women were considered black, that all black people stayed enslaved, and that all black people were considered not Christian. Imagining black enslaved women as heathen 
also helped plantation owners and overseers, etc., conceptualize these women as impure, as insatiably sexual and unconcerned with modesty, although, of course, their lack of modest apparel was a condition of their enslavement. This pernicious stereotype, now known as the Jezebel, contributed to black women's systematic rape and helped harness their reproductive labor into the slave economy as they birthed the next generation of enslaved populations. Yet, the Jezebel is also the perfect foil or the counter image for what's known as the cult of true womanhood. And that's the phrase that they used at the time, the cult of true womanhood. Um, and this is what we know, we kind of imagine as like the Victorian lady. Uh, this lady was modest and demure and nurturing. She stayed at home and she was very, very Christian. Um, and as we will see this imagined white woman again, so keep her in mind. But right here at the beginning of this story, we have to realize that she's the counter image to the Jezebel stereotype. That America built two models, one black and enslaved and impure and sexual and the other white and pure and domestic and soft and Christian. Okay, so fast forward to after the Civil War. And notably, the Southern Baptists became Southern Baptists, breaking off from the rest of the Baptists over the question of slavery. Uh, so the Southern Baptists would not give up their slaves. And after the Civil War, white Southern Christians embraced a rhetorical strategy known as the lost cause. And it still echoes through our current culture wars rhetoric. Lost cause rhetoric goes like this. It imagines the Confederate's army's loss as the crucifixion. And just as Christ rise, rose to a glorious future, it envisions a glorious future of white supremacy rising after a period of suffering. By circulating lost cause rhetoric, white Southern women protected their status as Southern ladies maintaining their roles as the guardian and symbol of Southern virtue. And this directly weaponized white femininity, white Southern Christian femininity against black people. Because the more her purity and her virtue was celebrated, the more fraud, the more violence, the more lynching could be conducted in her name. When Southern and Northern denominations reunified, the lost cause rhetoric infused the whole body, right? easily taken up by Northerners who resisted desegregation. Indeed, this lost cause rhetoric still circulates as evangelicals describe themselves as an embattled minority operating with an underdog narrative in which the evangelical is the underdog, the David to secular society's Goliath. The politics of these decisions, enslavement, abolition, desegregation, Jim Crow laws, they highlight how white Christians saw themselves steering America's future as a politics. Take, for instance, the early culture war rhetoric. So Paul Rayrich and Jerry Falwell Sr. were originally unable to generate much traction for their moral majority. They only gained momentum after the white Christian institution, Bob Jones University, lost its tax-exempt status when it refused to rescind its racially discriminatory policies. This galvanized the white evangelicals into political activism under the banner of religious freedom. Um, and Jerry Falwell Sr. called the white church to arms preaching, this is a direct quote, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. You can hear the Christian white supremacy here, Christians own this country, it's our country. 
Voting trends and polling data suggest um, that this fused white Christian American identity animates contemporary evangelical politics. White evangelicals support white supremacist policies and politicians, even when those politicians act and speak in ways that are antithetical to Christian doctrines and values. And although white evangelicals self-report feeling very warmly towards black people, polling data demonstrates that white evangelicals are the strongest supporters of Confederate symbolism, think monuments, flags, and of economic and social policies that oppress black people, especially against welfare policies, where the stereotype of the Jezebel lurks in the welfare queen, scare tactic. Okay, so essentially, <laughs> uh, white supremacy is an ongoing politic within evangelicalism. Now, evangelicals cannot retreat to an enclave or a sect. They can't go out somewhere distant in Arizona, right? Um, <laughs> the way a lot of fundamentalist groups do. Oh, sorry, Utah. I got my, I got my states wrong. Um, anyways, evangelicals have to advance. Uh, doctrinally, their traditions insist on witnessing on bringing the kingdom. So imagining themselves as an embattled minority, they engage with secular society, they are in the world, although of course not of the world, um, evangelizing and bearing faithful witness to God's goodness. Now this isn't about dialogue or a relationship, it's about proclaiming the message. Um, yeah, so evangelism is usually just announcing your faith and then standing your ground. Uh, so for instance, I mentioned to my mother, uh, I was raised in a homeschooled family in Texas, uh, I mentioned to my mother that instead of going to my church this morning, I'm a, a member at Pillar Church in Holland, um, so, but instead of going to my church, I'd be teaching at a spiritual community um, after she sussed out what that was. Uh, she says to me, what will you do to bring Jesus to these people, Sarah? <laughs> and we, we had a kind of difficult back and forth. Um, and then she said, you have the spirit inside you, you're a beacon for Jesus, bringing his message wherever you go. So evangelism here, right, it's just showing up. Showing up, proclaiming, standing your ground, right? Uh, my mother would like me to evangelize you more thoroughly. Um, but, but she's content with the fact that I'm just here, Right? Uh, so when we think about that, um, we're, we're then thinking about things like cross, crosses as jewelry, bumper stickers, t-shirts, music, home decor, just, just announcing, right? Um, and to a large extent, evangelism um, is reduced down to identity signaling. It's just announcing one's evangelism or evangelicalism through symbolic commodities. Think Hobby Lobby. Um, but it's... <laughs> It's not just commodities, it's also behavior. And this is where we're going to get to... Um, to the centerpiece of the, the research I want to present to you today, because we're back to women. So the research is about the way white Christian femininity symbolizes or presents evangelical politics. Um, we're thinking about the way Christianity uses femininity to control and advance a nationalist agenda, especially when, when ev evangelicalism can't say the racist parts out loud. So overt racism when it's not masquerading as Southern pride, heritage, meritocracy, or the woundedness of reverse racism, when it's not doing that, it's largely considered unchristlike and un-American. But in America, racism and sexism are mirror images of one another. Because if you can control who women have sex with, then you can control phenotype. You can control race. So white Christian nationalism doesn't have to say the, the racist part out loud. It just has to control white women's bodies. 
So we're back to fundamentalism, the control of white women's bodies. And this is um, our project. So we are thinking here um, about how women become the sort of like beachhead in the culture wars. White women's purity displayed symbolically through purity rings, pledge cards, covenants, necklaces, but also through behavior, right? Virginity, father-daughter purity balls, the rejection of dating. That's what's distinguishing evangelicals as evangelicals in mainstream culture. So my former student, Sage, and I, um, we wanted to show this in motion. So we studied Girl Defined, which is an evangelical girls' ministry led by the Texan sisters, Kristen Clark and Bethany Beale. They described their ministry as, quote, helping modern girls understand and live out God's timeless truth for womanhood. And their ministry is huge. YouTube channels, book deals, conferences, um, it's all essentially a kind of self-help sort of devotional-esque ministry, and it focuses on getting girls to, quote, live right, which can basically be summed up like this. Be modest, don't have sex, cultivate patience and gentleness, and all the other character traits that will make you a good wife and mother, and don't ever try to lead. Also, God loves you, and your different lifestyle will honor him and save our country. Right? This should sound familiar. It's a reincarnation of that cult of true womanhood, the Victorian lady. Um, in our research, we call it pure white womanhood, where pure does double duty, referring not only to the supposed purity of the white race, but also to purity culture, and particularly Christian constructions of virginal femininity. Studying Girl Defined, we mapped two things. First, techniques. The way these appeals look and sound, the, the kind of style of pure white womanhood. And then second, the identity. Okay, so we'll start with the style. What does this look and sound like? Uh, what are the techniques of this appeal? Uh, honestly, it looks so inviting. It's so very nice. Clark and Beale are beautiful blonde women. And on their YouTube channel, they are fun and friendly and enthusiastic. Uh, and they wear a lot of pastel colors, um, and they have such fun, supportive conversations, right? They're sisters, and they invite their audience into a sisterhood, that's what they call it, and all of their online merchandise sells sisterhood, bracelets, necklaces, t-shirts. They are soft, warm, inviting, and refined, and they have a lot of flowers, and everything is pink. And their YouTube videos are filmed in the home, in the bedroom, in the living room, in the kitchen. The style is white femininity with all the associations of purity and protectiveness and gentility that go with it. And also, they are always talking in opposites. Uh, so they present the world in two camps, that which is God-defined and that which is culture-defined. God-defined means something is behaving naturally. It's fulfilling its predestined role. It's living in accordance with the way God made it. Culture-defined is when something has lost its way has let something other than God define how it finds meaning. And this brings us to the second point, the sort of identity or the person that this ministry asks girls to become. They ask girls to step into, quote, true femininity or God-defined femininity. And here they argue, argue that girls are designed by God to be beautiful. To be beautiful. It's so very clever, right? What girl in America doesn't want to be beautiful? But get this, beauty is defined as modestly enhancing one's looks, dressing fashionable and feminine, but still modest, doing their hair and makeup to enhance one's natural features, and yes, they sell makeup bags um, with the phrase, with the phrase, God designed, God designed me to look the way I do, which is, on a makeup bag is, is I don't know. Okay, um, anyways, 
all of this beauty advice is, again, very white standards for beauty, but it's also in this packaging endorsed by God. He wants you to be beautiful. And this beauty is also very pure. So no sex, no sexiness, but also no self focus. This beauty is supposed to point people to God. People are supposed to look at your beauty and see God. You are not supposed to keep the gaze on yourself. You certainly shouldn't enjoy being looked at. And here beauty turns into submission. Beauty is ultimately about behavior. To be beautiful, women must speak beautiful words and create beauty through household tidiness and decor, which you can find at Hobby Lobby, um, through acts of kindness and submissiveness, through other-centeredness. For example, they advise girls to live out God's design for their lives, to be beautiful by dropping out of college so you can avoid debts that would make it hard for you to stay at home once you become a mother. Beauty is about organizing your whole life around marrying a good Christian man who can lead you and raising children to believe in God. It is girls gone fundamentalist. Now, these appeals position Christian girls as being under attack. This is very clearly lost cause rhetoric, right? Um, so girls are under attack by feminism and secular culture, and Clark and Beale are asking girls to defend beauty, promising that although God-defined girls are only a small minority, we will overcome, but how do you defend beauty? Well, first, you have to be really bold living out your God-defined girlhood. For instance, you can buy their t-shirts with verses on them. <laughs> and then you say no to sex and sexiness, boldly. And most importantly, you orient your whole future towards a husband and kids. But wait, there's more. You can defend your beauty by defending space in which men can do biblical manhood. See, secular culture has apparently also attacked men so that they don't know how to lead, even though men are designed by God naturally for leadership. Anyway, um, you're only going to be beautiful if you're living submissively to a biblical man, so you need to prop the guy up so you can submit to him. Um, <laughs> they recommend that you encourage his leadership by, this is a direct quote, calling out the hero in your man um, by waiting for him to ask you out, letting him make decisions in the relationship, letting him protect you, and this one's real simple, letting him open doors for you. Most of all, by being submissive, women defend a space in secular society in which men can be spiritual and social and physical leaders. And all of this is framed as witnessing. All of this is framed as evangelism. Clark and Beale claim that by following God's instruction manual for femininity, we become, quote, a profound testimony to a watching, needy world. All right, so I'm wrapping up here. What does all of this do? Well, first of all, it solves a generational problem. It keeps daughters becoming mothers who raise daughters to become mothers within the evangelical community. This is the fundamentalist cycle. Second, it positions white girls on the front lines of the culture wars. Girls are the symbolic barrier between the evangelical and the secular or sinful. Girls are the banner bearers for a white supremacist culture or a way of being and for a patriarchal worldview. And remember, this isn't just about living the life you're called to live. It's about reclaiming America. It's about the nation. It's about politics. Because evangelicals see themselves as called to live a life of witness, a life that changes the people around them by testifying to how good God is, or at least how good you are by not having sex. <laughs> Third, girl-defined ministry offers a style. It models how the next generation can witness, far from the strident tones and the in-your-face jabs of evangelicalism's male leaders, Clark and Beale are cozy, fun, kind-hearted. 
They're modeling a style that makes white Christian nationalism look and sound and feel really nice and really fun. And this honestly defends fundamentalist evangelicalism from accusations of sexism. After all, how could it be sexist if women endorse it? And we suggest that this rhetorical style protects fundamentalist evangelicalism from accusations of racism while furthering white supremacy. After all, how could they be racist? They're so nice. But their niceness, their style, is exactly dependent on the cultural associations of whiteness and submissive Christian femininity, which gets its meaning by that lurking counter image, the Jezebel. All right, I'm drawing to a close, and before I do, I just want to say, I know that occasionally I get a little bit flippant. Maybe I touch a nerve or two. Maybe you also have memories. Maybe there's some old wounds. Uh, I know there are, and I try to call, cover them with gallows humor. Um, but, if, but if I struck a nerve, uh, I would say, please forgive me. And so to close, girls' ministries, like Girl Defined, claim to champion girls, but they mostly champion a fundamentalist version of evangelicalism. Their advice is swimming in the long-standing racist associations between Christianity, whiteness, and U.S. politics, and these ministries turn girls into mothers, thus maintaining a religious community that historically baked racism and religion and politics together. Right? And the real trick here is that the control of women's bodies is all internalized. There isn't a man in sight, right? Other than your hypothetical future husband, right? Um, yeah, so these women's ministries, right, they, they take patriarchal white supremacy and they make it just so pretty and it comes in pink and we do it to ourselves and we'll advertise it or model it because we're just so beautiful. And once girls go fundamentalist, the cycle is complete. We keep the community going, we protect it, we police it, we advance it, we do all of the work, and we want none of the credit. We offer up our lives. Uh, the we here is a little bit personal. Sage and I were both raised in white evangelical communities. We're intimately acquainted with these girls' ministries, right? It's an old wound. We are the daughters. I'm now a mother. We aren't very good by these standards, and my mom has a lot to say. Um, but as feminist Christians, um, I would just say I feel a real God-given calling that the cycles of Christian racism and sexism, these cycles end with us. Thanks. <laughs>